Most of you here this morning watch the news or you read the headlines maybe on your phone. Probably most of you go to the movies from time to time or you watch them on Netflix. Probably have a favorite TV series that you binge watch. Probably you go out at night from time to time or you tailgate a little. Who knows what you do. But when you read about the headlines, when you read about laws that are passed, when you watch, when you listen to what our culture produces, or when you are out among people of our culture and watch the interactions that you see, what do you think about our culture? Do you find that you are hopeful or in despair? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I want to define culture this way, the way Robert or Richard Niebuhr defines it in his classic book now, really a definitive book for 70 years. It's called Christ and Culture. And he defines culture as the social life of humanity, the environment created by humans in these areas, quote, language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. Now, do you believe, do you feel like we as believers in Christ can have an impact on our culture defined this way, on our customs and beliefs and habits and social organizations? Or do you feel like it's just time to give up on something that's too far gone and just focus on doing our own thing? Is there hope for our culture? I think the, since the New Testament church was formed, believers in Christ have been asking questions like these because we know that Jesus has commanded us that we are to be salt and light in this world. And we know that since he has not yet taken us out of this world, we're, we're all here this morning, it probably is good for us to think about how we should engage our culture. Because you know what? With Jesus, there is always hope. Do you believe that? With Jesus, there is always hope. Do you believe that? One more time. With Jesus, there is always hope. So that's what we need to think about this morning, because you and I must have an impact on our culture for Christ. And so we have been and are going to continue to talk about how we might do that. And so we're going to return this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, please take those out and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, this is the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with 
Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's true, that it's timeless, that it's for all people in all places, in all ages. It's for us this morning. And so we pray now, Spirit of God, that you would join the truth of this word and that you would produce power, power to change us. Lord, we cling to your promise that you give blessing when your word is read and heard. So give that blessing to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And before we get to the passage in Hebrews 11 this morning, I want to prime the pump, uh, so to speak, of our thinking about culture with with two other passages uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, The first one's from Jeremiah 29. If you've been around Redeemer here very long, you've you've heard it multiple times. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So God is addressing exiles in these verses. When God finally disciplined his people, when he finally sent them into exile for their faithlessness and for their turning away from him, then finally those people decided they wanted to live by the word of God. Then they wanted to separate themselves from those who did not love God or his word or his ways. Then they wanted to withdraw themselves and have nothing to do with the wickedness and the sin of the city. But God said, no, don't withdraw. Instead, be part of the city. Settle down there. Be part of the life of the city. Seek the prosperity of the city. Bless the city with my presence and my will 
and my way. And so at least in this case, God is speaking against a, a wash-your-hands-of attitude toward culture. And He's calling His people to live in the midst of people, lives of obedience to Him in a culture that did not know Him. The second passage, one verse, it's from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And this verse describes the men of the tribe of Issachar. Scripture says that this tribe understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Now, that's a short verse. You would call it an obscure verse. You would probably skip right over it without noticing it. But think about what it reveals about how people in real time and real space lived their lives. It tells us these people were looking at the culture around them. And they were evaluating it so that they could understand it and how it worked so that they could make right decisions about how to live in that culture. And so I imagine us being like the, the tribe of Issachar. We here in this room looking around at our culture, seeking to understand it, wanting what's best for it. Asking important questions as we look, such as what are the challenges facing this generation? And there are plenty of those. What's called right? What's called wrong? What does the struggle between the two look like? How does the gospel address it? How should I live my life in a way that has meaning and influence and impact? What's the role of the church? in addressing these questions in our culture. Now, let's get back to Hebrews chapter 11. Last week when we looked at this passage, we saw that the, the first step, step one, the first step that we have to take if we are going to be effective in taking our vision as a church into our culture, if we are going to effectively engage it, then you and I must make this admission. We must make this acknowledgement that we are strangers and aliens in this world. That's it. We are strangers. We are aliens in this world. And no matter how you define culture and no matter how you believe, you or I or we as a church should relate to it, this point is not debatable. The Hebrews passage is clear. The people who were called by, called by God and lived by faith in Him, they all made this acknowledgement. We are strangers. We are aliens in this world. Clearer still are Jesus' words in the upper room during the Last Supper. He told His disciples, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world in prayer with the Father. That same night, Jesus acknowledged this about his disciples. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. It may be because the apostle Peter heard Jesus praying. This prayer and saying these words that in his letters he refers to believers in Christ 
as strangers in the world. He urges believers in Christ to live as strangers and aliens during our time of exile in this world. And so though we're part of the culture, people who have faith in Christ never really fit in. We never really fit in. And so no matter how you choose to engage or impact our culture, we got to keep this mindset. It's a way of seeing ourselves when we're at work, when we're at school, when we're at the neighborhood block party, when we're at the gym, when we're at the bar, when we are in community theater, I don't care, wherever, whatever the setting, we must be Christian in those settings. And to be Christian means that we are aliens and strangers. So that's step one. If we're going to impact our culture, we've got to be strangers and aliens. Step two is this. We've got to view ourselves as temporary. We have to view ourselves as temporary. Look in verse 9. It says that by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the promise. Living in tents. Tent living is definitely temporary housing. Usually for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months. But look at Abraham. It was for a lifetime, and not just his lifetime, but for three generations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all living in tents. You know, I, I think that each generation wants something better than they had for the next generation. I know that that's what I want for my children, something better than I had, and now for my grandson. Did I mention he's here today? Did I mention he's the cutest child you'll ever, never mind. But it's true. We want better for our children, grandchildren, those coming after us. I know the earthbound part of me wants security for them, permanence. Safety, settledness, those are things I want. But then I have to stop and ask myself, but what does the Lord want for them? Abraham never had any of that. Neither did his son, neither did his grandson. They were constantly on the go, always moving. And though God promised the promised land to Abraham, he never owned any of it except one cave that he purchased so that he might bury his wife, Sarah, there. So we've got to contrast that pre-faith life of Abraham with the life that he lived after he came to faith. Before faith, Abraham was from the city of Ur, and Ur was a large city. It was an important city. It was the principal commercial center of the country as well as the center of political power. That's where Abraham was from. We don't know where he lived in the city. Maybe his house was on our equivalent of Broad Street, near the four corners of Law, or King Street, or Meeting Street. Perhaps Abraham and his family were involved in the politics of the city. Perhaps they were respected members of the Chamber of Commerce. Or maybe they were on the Committee for the Arts of Ur. 
Say that three times quickly. The arts of her. I don't know. But his life after coming to faith in the one and only true and living God took Abraham away from all of that and it turned Abraham into a nomad. For Abraham, faith meant trading in security and permanence for an undefined adventure with God. God said, go to the land. I will show you. God didn't show it to him. He didn't have a glossy brochure. Here it is, Abraham. He didn't give him an address so Abraham could Google it first and, and see what it looked like. No, he called him and by faith Abraham went. He just obeyed God and that meant, faith meant, that he had to strike his tent over and over and over again and keep moving on and moving on and moving on. Faith meant that Abraham no longer found his value in accumulating and, and nesting and in settledness and in the security of places and things. But listen, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob weren't losers because of it. Faith in God, the sure presence of God, makes it okay to live in this world in a temporary way. You might trade permanence, you might trade security, but guess what? You gain God. There's a distinct difference between the pre-faith life of Abraham and the post-faith life of Abraham. A difference between the way he viewed the world before he knew God and the way he viewed the world after he came to know God by faith. How distinct is that difference in your life, in my life? Is our faith in Jesus just an add-on to how we already live, what we already value? Or does our faith in Christ bring a radical change in the way we live in this world? See, each of us has to answer that question. If the way we live in, if the way we view our culture doesn't change because of our faith in Jesus, if we continue to look at the world and the way our culture looks at the world, if we continue to value what our culture values and talk like our culture talks and socialize in the same way our culture socializes and have all the same habits that our culture has, how will our culture see the difference that faith in Jesus makes if we find our security in exactly the same ways and the same places that our culture finds security how, how will our culture know that the, the only certain thing the only unchangeable thing the only anchor for their souls their only security their only impenetrable fortress the only lasting thing is Jesus do you believe that? The people who are listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that's referred to as the Christian hall of faith, are people who were for sure living in this world, but they viewed it as temporary. They're people who accepted that this life, the life of faith, may be unsettled. They are people who knew 
that what was of first importance was being about the business of the Lord and not making comfortable places for themselves. That isn't to say that God doesn't establish us where we are. He does. Scripture's clear. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. It tells us that God has determined the times and the exact places where we should dwell. And God may settle you in one place for the rest of your life. But if so, for what purpose? For your safety? For your security? Or so that from that place, the light of Christ should radiate from you. So that from that place, the aroma of the life of Christ in you wafts out to those around you. The issue isn't whether God calls us to move or whether God calls us to be planted. The issue is how we view the world around us. Do we seek to emulate it? Do we crave acceptance from it? Do we seek the things from the world that we should seek from the Lord? Do we find our value in having and accumulating the things the world values? Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11 puts before us a willingness on the part of the people to be in the culture, but not swayed by it. Not to value what it values. That's how Jesus lived. Remember when the teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responded to that bold statement by saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that's true. From everything we know about the life of Jesus, he had no permanent home, no permanent dwelling place. It seems he had nothing but the clothes on his back. He was an itinerant gospel preacher who healed people and worked miracles to point to the glory of God. When Jesus sent out the 72 disciples on a ministry project, he said, do not take a purse or bag or sandals. And they did not. They struck out in ministry for the Lord with nothing. And Luke tells us what happened when they came back, when they were finished. The 72 returned with joy. Not having anything did not take away their joy. During the Last Supper, Jesus reminded the disciples of that first ministry expedition. And he asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Even though they had nothing, they lacked nothing. Samuel Rutherford, I think I told y'all before, he's my new best friend. He's that 17th century Presbyterian Scottish pastor. I feel like he's my pastor from all that he wrote. But this is what he wrote. Blessed were we if we could make ourselves masters of that invaluable treasure, 
the love of Christ. Or rather, suffer ourselves to be mastered and subdued to Christ's love. So as Christ were our all things, and all other things are nothings. Oh, let us be ready for shipping against the time our Lord's wind and tide call for us. You see, this is what faith, this is what love for Christ does for us. The love of Christ becomes the greatest treasure that we have. Everything else seems like nothing to us in comparison to knowing the love of Christ. When we know the love of Christ, we are ready for shipping when the Lord's wind blows and when the Lord's tide comes, we go. We're temporary here. Faith in Christ and love for Christ Call us to view this culture, not as a place to accumulate, but as a place to give, to give the love of Christ. When we have Christ, when we love Him, when we are loved by Him, we don't look to our culture to provide for us what the Lord provides. When we have Christ, when we love Him, when we are loved by Him, we don't need to chase after the same things that are culture chases when we have Christ when we love him when we're loved by him we don't need to compete with the world and the people of the world we're free from that competition because we've got something better we have the love of Christ and so we enter into all our activities we enter into all our relationships, not for our own need, not for our own gain. Christ, our treasure, has taken care of that already. But instead, we enter in those activities and relationships looking for how Christ can make a difference in the midst of them. And we give our best to our activities and our relationships because we know Jesus is good. And because we know that he can change lives almost done. D.A. Carson has written a book called Christ and Culture Revisited. And he writes that the world is simultaneously resplendent with glory and awash in shame. And that every expression of human culture simultaneously discloses that we are made in God's image and shows itself misshaped and corroded by human rebellion against God. And so both are true. Every person you encounter, every individual that makes up part of what we call culture, everyone is made in the image of God. That's a glorious reality. And so there's hope. Do you believe that? But every individual you encounter is misshaped and corroded by sin. And so there's also great need. And God has equipped us to address that need. He's given us his gospel to share wherever we are 
so that people's lives can be reshaped into the image of Jesus. And he's given us the gospel to share so that the sin that corrodes and eats away at people's lives can be cleaned away. But reshaping people's lives with the gospel and cleaning away the corrosion won't be important to us. We won't even have time for it if we don't detach ourselves from our culture. If we don't take these two steps, admit that we're strangers and aliens here, and the second step, to let go and be okay with being temporary. Be free from the need to accumulate and from all that that pursuit steals from you and from me in terms of our time and energy and resources. This world, not our home. We're just passing through. We aren't here for long. We aren't. We're only temporary. So let's all of us live like we believe that so we can make a difference in our culture right now for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much once again for the truth of your word, Lord, from the passage in Romans chapter 8, Lord, we know what's awaiting us, our redemption, our full adoption as sons and daughters, Lord, a, a remaking, a reshaping, a renewal of this world, Lord, it's, it's all good news and it's all ahead of us, and Lord, when when you bring these things to pass, it will be forever and ever and ever. Nothing temporary about it. So, Lord, I pray that you will help us keep our eyes fixed on your truth, on the promises you give us about what will be so that we know how to live right now. Lord, our culture needs people who love you dearly and who know how much we are loved by you. Our culture needs us to find our greatest and deepest fulfillment and satisfaction in you, where that frees us to be a different kind of people. It gives us courage not to withdraw from our culture, not to stand in judgment of how wicked it is and the decisions it makes and its habits its customs, and the way it socializes. Lord, your love for us gives us confidence to put ourselves right in the midst of it. Filled with the aroma, the life of Christ, filled with the words of the good news of the gospel. Father, help us to view ourselves as temporary here so that we can live in the world in this way, seeking our greatest good and joy and glory from you by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.